Well, good morning, church. It's awesome to be here with you again. Thank you for being here. And a special welcome to all who are listening this morning on this Pentecost day around the world. We welcome you and we're grateful that you have joined us. And we pray that this message impacts you in a positive way. I didn't really realize it was Pentecost till I got here about 15, 20 minutes ago. So my message doesn't really have much to do about Pentecost. But before I begin my message, let me just say happy birthday. Because today is known as the birthday of the church. It's the only day, holy day, special day that we have in common with the Jewish tradition of their seven holy days. They called it the Feast of Weeks. We call it Pentecost. They celebrated it as a day when a harvest came in and they were giving thanks to God for providing for them for another year. It's also traditionally known as the day when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the law good, just. But today, in the church, we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit in power and authority for us. Where we are empowered by the Holy Spirit when we speak the gospel, the Holy, it's infused with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, just by speaking the gospel, impacts other lives. You know, there was a commercial many years ago that said, I believe it was American Express, don't leave home without it. Well, Jesus told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem without it. Don't leave Jerusalem without the giving of the Holy Spirit because apart from him, you can do nothing. But we never have to worry about that because the Holy Spirit is now within us will never leave us, and will empower us for all the work that God's called each and every one of us to do. So it's a great day. It's a great day to be preaching. It's like Easter. Pentecost. A great day for the church, a great day for us individually. It empowered that first century church to go forward, out into the world, where there was massive persecution. But through that empowerment, as the Apostle Paul said, they turned the world upside down. And it wasn't them personally, they were a big part of it, but it was the Holy Spirit working through them. And that same Holy Spirit is working through us today. So never limit the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Amen? So that's my Pentecost message, which now I'll just move right along. And even before I begin today, I want you to know that this morning's message was prepared even before Pastor Valerie gave her excellent message on rethinking the end times. And after hearing that message, I realized that this message today could best be described as a prequel to her message. She jumped right in, with great success I might add, to the Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapter 24. I am taking a longer route to get where I eventually want to go. 
Today I'm laying the foundation for what is yet to come in upcoming messages. Let me also say you may hear some repetition and similarities between Valerie's message and mine. And I ask that you bear with me in this. Besides, repetition can often be a good learning tool. And I hope you receive it as such. So I thank Mark and Valerie for giving me the opportunity to begin a series of messages that I have entitled, Your Ultimate Destiny. Now what is our ultimate destiny? Is there a simple, easy answer to that question? In order to get your attention, I could easily and truthfully answer, well, yes and no. Or if I chose to be more mysterious, I could easily and truthfully answer, yes, but perhaps not in the way you might imagine. By the end of these messages, the question of our ultimate destiny will indeed be answered. But again, it might come as a bit of a surprise to some of you, but I guarantee you it will be a good surprise, an amazing surprise, because our ultimate destiny is an awesome one. One that can only be truly imagined and brought to pass by our amazing and awesome God. Now along the way to that answer, I may end up stepping on some proverbial toes. And I can only hope that it doesn't hurt so much that it would cause you to close your ears and refuse to listen to what I'm saying and to what I believe that the Word of God is saying. The reason I bring all this up is because along the road to discovering our ultimate destiny, we are going to be passing along a road that is named eschatology. It's a big word with a simple definition. It means the study of end times. Now one might easily jump to the conclusion that our ultimate destiny and the end times are one and the same thing. And even though they are somewhat related, they are definitely not the same thing. And we are going to proceed slowly in our study of these topics. And we are going to cover a lot of different ground. But I believe this to be absolutely necessary because, notwithstanding Pastor Valerie's messages, there is a complete overall lack of teaching on these subjects within the church. And I believe this is the case for at least a couple of reasons. One is that it is taken for granted or assumed what our ultimate destiny is. And secondly, those of us who have grown up as Christians in the United States or in the Western world have only heard of one possible version of end time events. I could also say we have only heard of one theory or one possible storyline as to how the end time events would unfold. And since this one theory is all we have ever heard, and since we have heard it over and over again, we without question accepted it as the gospel truth. I know I did, to the point that I found it hard to believe that anybody could even think of believing anything different. But before we get into looking at these different end-time scenarios, another word of caution. One of the hardest things we will ever have to do in our journey as Christians, in following Jesus, is to repent. 
And I'm not talking about repenting from obvious sin. That can be relatively easy. But notice I did use the word relative. And this is because it's very true. That some sins can take a lot of time and effort for their bondage over us to be finally broken. But the repentance that I'm speaking of is according to the actual definition of the word repentance, which is to change your mind, which results in a change of behavior. And this becomes especially difficult, changing your mind, when it involves changing your mind about a belief that you might hold very dear to you personally. It becomes even more difficult to change your mind about something you're very comfortable with. When you really hope that belief is true, when you really want it to be true. You know, Jesus had to deal with this very issue in the vast majority of his contemporaries throughout his entire ministry. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, and even his own disciples. They believed things about God and his kingdom that were true. But they also believed many things about God and his kingdom that were not true. And from what they needed to repent, to change their minds about. That's why Jesus' first public words of his ministry, at least according to Matthew and Mark, are Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time... Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the Gospel of Mark, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change your mind and believe in the good news. And of course, even before Jesus, this was the message of John the Baptist from the very beginning of his ministry as well. In Matthew chapter 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The problem with Israel at the time wasn't that they didn't believe in a possible Messiah or that they didn't believe in the coming kingdom of God. They did believe strongly. But they believed that the Messiah would come and drive out those pagan Romans who were ruling over them, who would establish the nation of Israel to its former glory, prestige, and rulership that it once had under kings David and Solomon. Only even more so. They believed that God himself would return to Jerusalem and rule over all the nations of the world through his chosen people Israel. This was their belief, their vision, their mindset. And while Jesus did come and establish the kingdom of God and his rule and reign, it wasn't like anything they wanted or believed in. The Pharisees in particular thought they could expedite their rescue from the Romans and the appearance of God's kingdom through obeying the Torah, God's law, and doing it in a more and more strict and holy way. But Jesus taught a different message. And the problem wasn't just that they had a wrong idea about the Messiah and God's kingdom. 
The real problem was that they refused to consider Jesus' message in spite of all he did and taught. In spite of all his healings and miracles and warnings about what could happen to them. The problem was they refused to change their mind. They became prideful, arrogant, hard-hearted to the point that they refused to even consider the possibility that they might be wrong. They refused to be taught, to learn from the greatest teacher that there ever was. And again, in spite of the fact that no matter what test these great intellectuals of the day put to Jesus, he silenced them every single time until they finally silenced him for three days by hanging him on a tree. I say all this as a word of caution, even a word of warning, that we do not become dogmatic about certain views within Christianity, which as much as we would like to think otherwise, are not just black and white. Whether it be eschatology, political stances, prophecies, the judging of certain sins within the church, and perhaps hundreds of other pet beliefs. We need to realize there are a lot of gray areas, and we should not be arrogant to the point to believe that we could never be wrong. And so then slam the door on any possible learning and growing on our part. Now, if anyone ever had cause to be arrogant, it would have been Jesus, amen? After all, he was God in the flesh. And yet scripture tells us in Luke chapter 2 and 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, in broad and full understanding, and in stature and years, and in favor with God and men. This, of course, was talking about Jesus when he was 12 years old. But I also believe that Jesus never stopped learning and growing in wisdom. Why do I say this? Because scripture tells us that Jesus was always listening to the Father. In John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And in John chapter 5, verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Scripture is crystal clear on this. Jesus was always looking to the Father, listening, learning from him what he should be doing and saying. And here is the Son of God's Attitude and character revealed completely. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus told his disciples, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly, humble in heart. That's the character, the attitude of Jesus. In doing so, you will find rest for your souls. Jesus was, in fact, the very opposite of arrogant was always in a position of being taught and learning. How much more should we, today, have this same mindset? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We 
have the mind of Christ. We should be operating in the same mindset as Jesus himself, always willing to learn and grow. 2 Peter 3.18 sums this up very well. One of my favorite scriptures where we're admonished to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To grow, we have to be willing to change, to learn. Now, having said all this, I also believe it's very important that we do stand firm on the foundational beliefs of the church. The beliefs that were once set out in the great creeds of the early church, You know, we probably all said or prayed them at one time in our past, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And though it's not as if they contain all the beliefs that we should hold firm to. I mean, we could easily add, love one another as Jesus has loved us. But they are an excellent starting point, and we should be careful as to what else we might want to add to these lists and become dogmatic about. As American educator Stephen Covey said years ago, The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Good, solid advice for Christians today. But even better advice comes from Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where it tells us that the Bereans received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Scripture must be our final authority on all matters, as well as being led and taught by the Holy Spirit, using godly wisdom. Sometimes, even using a little common sense would help. It's amazing how often we just throw that out the window. And I've taught this before, and I know you've all heard this before, but the Bible absolutely must be read in context. In Rethinking the End Times, Pastor Valerie talked about historical context, and that is super, super important. And so is the fact that we not just pick a verse or verses out from here or there in order to make a particular point. Sometimes you will need to read the whole chapter of a book to really understand what the author is saying. I really believe when it comes to the Apostle Paul, you need to read all his letters in order to get a good grip on his mindset and what he's trying to teach his churches. Sometimes what he teaches in one letter will bring understanding to something that might not be as clear in another letter. And did you know that the whole Bible is really a story? It's a story about how a good and loving God is dealing with, working with his good creation. Unfortunately, that has been corrupted with sin. And he has always been in the process of rescuing and redeeming his good creation. Again, I say all this to say that we need to be careful what we are listening to, who we are learning from, what we are receiving into our heart. So when it comes to eschatology and our ultimate destiny, just because it's a popular teaching or it's taught and believed by many different people and even though some of them may be high-profile ministers, it doesn't make them automatically right. It doesn't necessarily make them wrong, but it doesn't necessarily mean 
that they're teaching truth either. And even if they are wrong, it doesn't make them evil. Just wrong. Deceived. And we've all been wrong. Some of us more than we might care to admit. But it's easy to be deceived if we're not being careful. Jesus told us, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Now as we begin this study of eschatology, let me begin by saying I in no way claim to be an expert on this subject. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm nowhere near smart enough for that. It has been an interest of mine for many years, and I would consider myself to be fairly well-read on the subject. I have read many books by different authors who hold different viewpoints on events that surround the end times. Some of these authors you've probably heard of, and many more that you have not. Some of these authors have ministries that are based partly or primarily on promoting their end-time viewpoints. And with great success, I might add, both in popularity and financially. But I'm not going to go there. Not that those things are bad or evil in themselves. Other authors that I've read are without a doubt biblical scholars who have spent much time researching and writing from what I believe to be a truly biblical perspective. I also believe very strongly that what I'm about to teach today is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. As we used to say in our courtrooms in this country. I don't know if we do or not anymore. Now actually I know I don't have the whole truth on this matter. Only God has that. But I'm going to do my best to share with you what I've learned through the years, through my reading, studying, and through even a little common sense. Now after this teaching is over and done and you choose to disagree with me, well that's fine. We can agree to disagree. Disagree with me if you will, but I hope you would not disagree just because your position on the end times is a belief you've held for a long time or because it's a belief you hope will happen, or a belief you're very comfortable with. But that you disagree with me because you've proven to yourself that your belief is actually what is taught from the Word of God. So again, it's so easy and perhaps very normal, where if you're only taught, or you've only heard one thing on a subject, you would assume it to be the truth and perhaps the only viewpoint that there is. This is especially true of eschatology, but also true of many other teachings within the church. Before we begin, let me be upfront in that we will not be getting to the subject of the title of this message, Your Ultimate Destiny, today. That will come next time, or the time after that. But it's important to keep in mind, because it's directly connected to eschatology, and it is our goal and where we will eventually end up. So now I want to give what I hope will be a brief overview of the different views and the specific beliefs that many in the church have held down through the years concerning eschatology and end-time events. There are four general ways through which prophecy, 
in the book of Revelation and end time events have been interpreted in the past and in the present. All this forthcoming information comes from Wikipedia. One way eschatology has been interpreted is through a view called idealism. It's also called the spiritual approach and the allegorical approach. There are many different thoughts and viewpoints within this view. But to summarize very briefly, idealist theology came about as Renaissance thinkers began to doubt that the kingdom of God had indeed been established on earth, or even that it would be established. But they still believed in it. So rather than the kingdom of God being present in society, it is only established subjectively for the individuals. One proponent interpreted the kingdom of God as a symbol representing society's general improvement instead of a physical political kingdom. The great German theologian, author, and biblical scholar Karl Barth, along the same line, interprets eschatology as representing existential truths that bring the individual hope rather than history or future history. Idealism is distinct in its view in that it does not see any of the prophecies, except in a very few cases, as being fulfilled in a literal, physical, earthly sense, either in the past, present, or future. A second view is called historicism, and it's a method of interpretation of biblical prophecies that associates symbols with historical persons, nations, or events. It can result in a view of progressive and continuous fulfillment of prophecy from the biblical times to the second coming. Almost all Protestant reformers from the Reformation into the 19th century held to historicist views. The reformers themselves used this view in teaching that the Antichrist was the papacy or the power of the Roman Catholic Church. The third view we will eventually talk about in more detail is called futurism. In futurism, parallels may be drawn with actual past historical events, but most eschatological prophecies are chiefly referring to events which have not yet been fulfilled, but will take place at the end of the age or the end of the world. Most of these prophecies will be fulfilled during a global time of chaos known as the Great Tribulation and then afterwards. Futurist beliefs usually have a close association with what has come to be known as dispensational premillennialism. Final way of interpreting eschatology or end-time events is what is called preterism. It is a Christian eschatological view that interprets some or all prophecies as events that have already happened. This school of thought interprets the book of Daniel as referring to events that happened from the 7th century B.C. to the 1st century A.D. It sees the prophecies of Jesus, known as the Olivet Prophecy, as having been fulfilled in the 1st century A.D., culminating in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And it sees the prophecies of the book of Revelation, as well as events that mostly happened 
in the first century A.D. Preterism also holds that ancient Israel finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and within the Christian church. Besides preterism, there are three other more specific views of how end-time events will actually unfold. One of these views is called amillennialism. Amillennialism involves rejection of the belief that Jesus will have a literal thousand-year-long reign on the earth. This view regards the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 as a symbolic number, not as a literal description. They hold that the millennium has already begun and is identical with the current church age. They also believe that while Christ's reign during the millennium is spiritual in nature, at the end of the church age, Christ will return in final judgment and establish a permanent reign in the new heaven and new earth. Another view is known as postmillennialism, and it is an interpretation which sees Christ's second coming as occurring after the millennium, which they believe to be a golden age in church history, in which Christian ethics prosper. They hold that Jesus has established his kingdom on the earth through his preaching and redemptive work in the first century, and that he equips his church with the gospel, empowers her by the Spirit, charges her with a great commission to disciple all nations. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of people living will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and of nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, Jesus Christ will return visibly, bodily, and gloriously to end history with the general resurrection and the final judgment, after which the eternal order follows. This was a dominant theological belief among American Protestants who promoted reform movements in the 19th and 20th centuries, such as abolitionism and the social gospel. Now we come to a major theological position that perhaps most of us are most familiar with, premillennialism. In Christian eschatology, this is the belief that Jesus will physically return to the earth before the millennium, which will be a literal thousand-year earthly kingdom. And this is based upon a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. His return will coincide with a time of great tribulation. At this time, there will be a resurrection of the people of God who have died and a rapture of the people of God who are still living. And they will meet Christ at his coming. The thousand years of peace will eventually follow, during which Christ will reign and Satan will be imprisoned in the abyss. Again, according to Wikipedia, this view is not held by most Christians. Denominations such as Oriental Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Anglicanism, Lutheranism, say those three things fast once, and they are all generally amillennialists. For the last century, premillennialism has been common 
and very popular in evangelicalism, especially within the United States, but it is also well known throughout Western Christianity. Other premillennial beliefs include a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and an evil world ruler known as the Antichrist who will eventually come upon the scene. Now those who hold to this view, to premillennialism, usually fall into one of three more further categories. The first are the pre-tribulationalists. They are those that believe the second coming will be in two stages, separated by a seven-year period of tribulation. At the beginning of this tribulation, true Christians will rise to meet the Lord in the air. Then follows a seven-year period of suffering, sometimes also referred to as God's judgment or wrath, and in which the Antichrist will conquer the world and persecute those who refuse to worship him. At the end of this period, Christ returns to defeat the Antichrist and establish the Age of Peace. A second group are those who believe that the rapture will take place at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. And this coincides with the abomination of desolation, which is a desecration of that rebuilt temple where the Antichrist puts an end to Jewish sacrifices, sets up his own image in the temple, and demands that he be worshipped as God. This event begins the second most intense part of the tribulation. This group is called the mid-tribulationists. And the final group are the post-tribulationists. They hold that Christ will not return until the end of the tribulation. Christians will live all the way through it and suffer for their faith during the ascendancy of the Antichrist. Needless to say, this is the least popular. Proponents of this position believe that the presence of believers during the tribulation is necessary for a final evangelistic effort during a time when external conditions will combine with the gospel message to bring great numbers of converts into the church in time for the beginning of the millennium. Now that concludes our brief survey of the different interpretations, views, and beliefs as to how the so-called end-time events and other prophecies that were given in the Bible, including those by Jesus himself, did or will take place. Bet you didn't realize there were so many beliefs out there. And even within all these different viewpoints, there are bound to be some more variances. In other words, not everyone that holds to a certain eschatological viewpoint is going to believe the exact same way about every detail. And again, my purpose up until now is to set a foundation to give you a general overview of the different views that have been or are being held by devout, pious, and Jesus-loving Christians throughout the ages, starting all the way back at the time of Jesus. Before I conclude today, I would like to give you a brief history of my spiritual journey and my different beliefs over the years of end-time events. So, here it goes. I was baptized in the Lutheran Church as an infant and then baptized in the Catholic faith as a young boy. I attended a Catholic grade school through the sixth grade 
and it was in this Catholic church where I received First Communion and was later confirmed. Throughout my very religious upbringing, catechism classes, altar boy training, all the rest, I do not remember any eschatological teaching other than the return of Jesus, the second coming, if you will. But it's interesting, you know that term is never used anywhere in the New Testament, the second coming. Anyway, I'm not saying that I didn't receive any other Catholic teaching about their beliefs in end time events. But if I did, I don't remember any of them. What I do remember is that the thought of Jesus' return didn't exactly fill me with joy, excitement, or enthusiasm. It was more on a level of trepidation and fear. As a guess, that was probably just coming from the great uncertainty of not knowing whether he would accept you or send you to hell. Again, that's a guess because I don't remember any specific teaching or doctrine on Jesus' return. It was just a feeling that I ended up carrying with me. My first real experience with eschatology and end-time events came much later in life, in my early to mid-30s, when I became involved with and then a member of the Worldwide Church of God. For those of you not familiar with this organization, it was founded by a fairly charismatic man, Herbert W. Armstrong. The church was somewhat well-known in the 1970s and 80s, which is about the time when I became a member. And in order to become a member, you had to take the plunge, so to speak, baptism by immersion. That was number three for me. Anyway, Mr. Armstrong was the primary teacher and doctrine maker. If I remember correctly, he was generally referred to as the 12th Apostle, as well as the end-time Apostle. He was well-respected and honored within the church, and what he said was the gospel truth. You didn't even think of questioning him or his policies. And why would you, right? After all, he was Christ's Apostle. Well, the Worldwide Church of God eventually ended up with over 30 pages in the late Walter Martin's classic book, the kingdom of the cults. To be fair, I never felt like I was part of a cult. I still don't really feel like it today. But I guess it's all how you define the word cult. Anyway, we did have some very unusual doctrines, practices, and beliefs, none of which are important for our present discussion, except for the one on the church's stand on eschatology. We believe that God's one true church us, would be taken to what was referred to as a place of safety for the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. The two New Testament scriptures that were used to propagate this belief was Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And we also believe that we were the Philadelphia church that Jesus was speaking to here. The other scripture also comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 
The woman here is symbolic of true Israel, the true church. Again, us, of course. And continuing in verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The Greek word for fly here, it actually means to fly like a bird. So, of course, we believe that at the appropriate time, the entire church would fly away on airplanes to the place of safety, which we believed could very well be the ancient city of Petra. Perhaps you've seen or heard of Petra. It was featured late in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It is made up of buildings and caves that have been carved out of huge rock walls. So this is where we were all going to live for those last three and a half years in what we were told was our final training before the return of Christ at the end of the Great Tribulation. So we would have been what you would have called post-tribulational millennialists, but with that special twist of having that place of safety. I mention this experience and my former belief not to be critical or judgmental of any person or organization, but to retouch on some points I tried to make earlier. First, and to use another metaphor, you need to be very, very careful about putting all your eschatological eggs in one basket, especially if you haven't thoroughly investigated those eggs as well as the basket. Again, it's very easy to believe that your view of end-time events is absolutely certain to happen if it's the only one you've ever heard. It's also very easy to believe it if it has been taught to you by a prominent and charismatic minister and teacher. And even more so if this view has been taught by many prominent Christians to the point it has been accepted as fact without having undergone a solid biblical exegesis or critical study to determine if it actually does line up with the Word of God. What can happen then, as we have seen in my past experience, is that someone can come up with an end-time event or eschatological viewpoint or theory and then goes to the Scriptures and finds some verses that can be twisted and turned and made to fit their own theory. It happened with me many years ago, and believe me, it's still happening today. So please be careful in what you choose to believe. But that's not the end of my journey through the spectrum of eschatological beliefs. A number of years after I had left the Worldwide Church of God, I turned to what one might call mainstream Christianity. I eventually started attending an evangelical church, and watching all kinds of religious programming on TV. And of course it was through some of those programs where I was first indoctrinated into the very popular teaching of premillennial dispensation. And more specifically, the viewpoint which included the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I believed it. I received it. 
I liked it. I never even thought to question it. I watched the Left Behind movies, watched the prophecy shows on a regular basis. Perhaps you've heard of some of those ministers, Jack Van Impey, Hal Lindsey, John Hagee, Ed Heinsohn, Perry Stone, to name a few. All of which are, to my knowledge, premillennial dispensationalists. And to my recollection, they all taught the any moment rapture of the church. I read books that defended their position on end time events and the scriptures they used to support their beliefs. And I held this view for many years, and again, without question. I never knew there was another viewpoint. Nothing was ever taught on television that I ever saw. It was hugely popular, almost a cultural phenomenon. Why would I question it? And then a few years ago, I was handed a book by Dr. John Noe that taught about four different views of eschatology from a completely biblical perspective. He used solid biblical exegesis as he analyzed these different viewpoints from the Word of God. I was fascinated and I was hooked. I began to read book after book about end time events and the prophecies of them as taken from the Bible. I read different authors with different ideas on how this was all going to work out. Some of them were dispensationalists, some were not. And as I read and studied what God's Word had to actually say, my viewpoint and beliefs changed. Not overnight, of course, but over time. How long did it take? I'm not sure, but change it did. And I believed it changed because I was listening to what the Word of God was saying, as well as to sound biblical interpretation. Again, reading Scripture in context, letting Scripture interpret Scripture and simply believing what the whole Bible actually says, and not what we want it to say, or what we hope it says. And so now we've come up to the present in my long and convoluted journey through my own end-time beliefs. I've told you what I believed in the past. I hope maybe you've learned something from it. But now it's both appropriate and necessary to share with you where this journey has finally led. After much study, I now believe, as Pastor Valerie, that the vast majority of prophecy within the Bible has already been fulfilled. That includes the Olivet Prophecy that was given by Jesus. It also includes the book of Revelation. So to put a label on my beliefs, I would also fall into the category or viewpoint of a partial preterist. The reason it's partial is because I do believe there is one final end-time event that is yet to happen, and that is the physical, bodily, visible return of Jesus Christ to this world, and all that goes with it, which includes our ultimate destiny. That is what this series of messages is indeed building up to. Next time, among other things, I want to share with you the preterist view of the book of Revelation and perhaps engage in dialogue with a more popular view of those who hold to the pre-tribulational rapture and the future great tribulation. 
I believe you will find it both interesting and challenging. We still have a lot of ground to cover. As we conclude today, one thing I hope that you do understand is that holding a different view on eschatology from yours doesn't make any other Christian less of a Christian or a heretic, and it doesn't necessarily even make them deceived. Perhaps it's we who are the ones who are deceived. I also hope that as we continue next time that you would keep an open mind and be willing to at least examine your viewpoints to see if they truly line up with what the Word of God is speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. Again, the purpose of this teaching is not just about being right or wrong or holding the correct doctrines on eschatology, although that is important. It's important because I believe holding right understanding, holding the right doctrine will directly impact how you live your life in the here and now. I believe holding a right understanding will motivate you to fulfill your vocation as the image of God, to be a light to the world, to reveal God in all his glory and majesty, in all his goodness and all his love to this world. Not as a God who is coming in judgment to destroy this world, but who is coming in love to restore, redeem, and bring new life to his good creation. Our future, the future of this world, the end times, if you will, is a glorious one. One I hope to show you in more detail next time as we continue to explore our ultimate destiny. God bless.